this morning. Romans 11, verses 1 through 24. The word of God reads, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we approach your holy and inerrant word this morning, 
we humble ourselves. God, soften our hardened hearts, clear our cluttered minds. May your word be handled rightly this morning. May your truths be proclaimed clearly by an imperfect servant. In Christ's name, amen. In our world right now, Israel is at war, attacked by the terrorist group Hamas. They face, a, they face an enemy that desires their extinction. And unfortunately, this is not the first time that Israel has faced such, a, such an enemy. As we think about the state of our world and what the consequences could mean of conflict in this area, we realize that whenever Israel finds itself at war, we have a tendency to focus on end times. I'm sure we have. Is this the end? Is this the conflict that sort of sets everything in motion? How will this world come to an end? When will, when will Jesus return? In other words, we find ourselves thinking about eschatology, the doctrine of last things, or the study of last things. And in our current world climate, many self-proclaimed experts and theologians, they take to social media and the blog posts, and they write books claiming to have the answers, applying mathematical equations to carefully selected passages, even going as far as to research moon cycles, and others take a philosophy of man and inject it into the text. And here today, in our passage, Paul is explaining to the church in Rome the state and the fate of Israel, and he does so without any of this. He does so without a complex formula. He does so without applying some preconceived ideological colander that he kind of strains the text through. Instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he returns time and again to the perfect and inerrant scriptures. We will learn from Paul that with difficult and sometimes confusing doctrines like eschatology, that we needn't focus on opening our minds, but instead opening our Bibles Scripture will interpret Scripture. This chapter has some answers to some huge questions that we have previously asked ourselves, I'm sure, about the Old Covenant and the New, about, about Israel and the church. Is God finished with the nation of Israel? Did he finally have enough? Has he turned his back on them? Has the church picked up where Israel left off? Is Israel basically a piece of history rather than an example of God's ongoing promises? When we read the Old Testament, we read of promises God made, covenants God made, and we want to know what happened to those promises. What does that mean for true Israel, for God's chosen and then we read in the New Testament, we see the church sometimes referred to as part of new Israel. And we see at least some of the promises God made now apply to the church as well. 
So we must be careful. We must stay glued to our Bibles, glued to the Word. Sometimes it's a good idea to put down the thrilling apocalyptic bestsellers and return to God's perfect Word. We learned in chapter 10 that God did not leave Israel out in his gospel proclamation. Rather, Israel chose to remove themselves. But we also learned that God has not and will not abandon true Israel. Let's look back at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. The gospel has been rejected, that much is certain. The question is, has God in turn rejected true Israel? And Paul gives an emphatic no. The Greek term is may nagoita. It is a strong negation, literally translated, never, may it never become, may it never be. This is the ninth use of this expression in the book. And again, a strong, emphatic negation. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, translates this part, absolutely not, exclamation point. And if you're here with a, a King James Bible, you read, God forbid, exclamation point, which is, of course, not a literal translation, but an attempt to capture the emphasis Paul was placing on this answer to whether or not God would abandon his people. Christian converts had been musing since the Jews had rejected Jesus, that God must or would in turn reject them. And Paul says emphatically, no. And he starts with a brief testimony. He says, I am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. He says that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And you have to understand, think about what we know about Paul. If anyone knows of God's faithfulness. Recently, Paul had been a terrorist that sought out Christians. He knows of God's faithfulness. God is using him to write a large portion of our Bible. Paul says, certainly God does not abandon or reject his people. And that brings us to our first point this morning. We're going to have three. Our first point, God's steadfast love for his children never weakens nor wanes. Though one may repeatedly stumble, a believer never ceases to be a child of God. In verse 2, we read that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In Scripture, when God is said to know someone, when God is said to foreknow someone, there is always an implication of relationship. We see this throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. Adam knew his wife. It doesn't mean he knew her name, right? They're having babies. He knows more than her name. Adam knew his wife. They had an intimate relationship. Romans 8, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Amos 3, God speaks of Israel saying, you only have I known. Well, God knows who all the other nations are. He's speaking of a relationship. Matthew 7, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? Jesus will tell them plainly, I never 
knew you. God foreknew true Israel. And God never abandons his own. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Israel does not have a a unique relationship to God because they chose him. True Israel has a unique relationship to God because he chose them. Before the foundation of the universe, God determined to save sinners, all sinners, through the blood of Jesus. And that's why in Revelation, we see Jesus referred to as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Those that God knows, those he foreknows, will be in an intimate and a saving relationship with him. And then Paul goes on, he reinforces his argument for God's faithfulness, and he does so by returning to the scriptures. He recalls Elijah's complaint about the apostatizing Jewish people. This is the last last half of verse 2 into verse 3. Scripture reads, "Do do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. He's quoting and summarizing 1 Kings 19 here. Elijah has just witnessed the power of God. God has, this is the big showdown, God has rained down fire upon the altar. The prophets of Baal have been put to death. And Elijah still becomes afraid of a Jezebelian death threat, and he he flees. He flees a long way, but he ends up in a cave, and God confronts him. And when God confronts him, he chooses to complain. I am the only one. They seek my life. That's such a human thing to think. You can feel the pride in that emotion. Verse 4. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Kept for myself. In other words, God has his children not because they have rejected Baal, but because they are God's children, they have rejected Baal. He says, Elijah, get out of the cave Stop complaining. Don't be so arrogant as to assume you have found holes or mistakes in my plan. He says, I am God. Do not doubt my faithfulness. I have preserved a remnant of 7,000. Paul sees this, and Paul draws a comparison between Elijah's era and the era many contemporaries were making. And then he again turns to the Scripture Citing Elijah's response, do not doubt the faithfulness of God. Paul says there is a remnant all the way back to Isaiah within the ethnic nation of Israel. Just like those who did not worship Baal, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, but it is by grace. It is no longer 
on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Those chosen by God remain his children, though the world around them actively rejects God. Israel does not have a remnant due to the covenant of works, we read right here, but by grace, God preserves a remnant. And through this remnant, God will keep his promises. Paul says it cannot be based upon works because then there would be no grace. It is the grace of God that moves one to good works, pleasing to God. This is God's choice. This is God's alone. He does things for his glory, for his good pleasure. But see, in verse 7, Israel is, they're awaiting this promise for satisfaction they feel owed. They have kept the law as they see it. They have done what was asked of them. But many of them have it wrong. The remnant, though, will perceive it correctly. And then in verse 8, Paul seems to be drawing from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 simultaneously. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Every Sunday morning, our worship team gathers right behind me on this stage, and we circle, and we spend a moment just talking about life. Sometimes we spend a a lot more than a moment just talking about life, but just looking into each other's lives, and then we pray together, and we pray for the pastor that's teaching the word that morning, but we pray for ears to hear and we pray for eyes to see, and we pray for hearts to be softened by the Holy Spirit because a hardened heart simply does not worship. We read that those who are hard, those who are resistant, that God gives them a spirit of stupor. We see this throughout Scripture with God. We're in Exodus, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh Does it mean that Pharaoh was a robot? No. Does it mean that Pharaoh wanted to be a nice guy and God chose to make him mean? No. Pharaoh was guilty and responsible for all of his actions. He was not coerced and God hardened his heart. And we as sinners are constantly surprised by our hearts, what we are capable of. Do you ever walk through one of these doors on a Sunday morning and you're so full of frustration or anger or in the middle of an argument that you sit here and the word of God cannot even penetrate your hardened heart? I know the answer to that is yes, because it's happened to everyone here. And so we pray for eyes to see and we pray for ears to hear, so that as, as Paul goes on in verse 10, that our eyes will not be darkened so that we cannot see. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, exclamation, exclamation again, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Again, we see God's faithfulness to his people and that his chosen are, are stumbling but not falling. And Paul, later in this passage, is going to complete this thought. So kind of bookmark this in your mind. The idea of God's people stumbling but not falling. So many people feel as though their sin is beyond the grace and forgiveness of God. You, you don't know what I've done. And of course it is not. Every person who populates heaven will be unworthy of the love and grace that they receive. Will they fall? Emphatically, by no means. God will preserve them. And we read on and we see a beautiful example of divine providence. That through Israel's trespass, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. That God, our sovereign God, has designed his salvific plan in such a way that the stumble of Israel leads to the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile people. And only an all-powerful God could ordain such. One group's sin and stumble leads to the salvation of another. And that leads us directly to our second point this morning. God's grace saves through difficult circumstances and across racial and ethnic lines. God's saving power is displayed when the gospel softens the hardened, reaches the unreachable, and unites the divided. That's a long one. We'll leave it up there. As we go through the last part of 11, we into, in, up, up toward verse 15, we start to see that this spread of the gospel to the Gentiles is making the Jews jealous. And I found that to be such an interesting word. We know that God is jealous for his glory. We know he's jealous for the worship of his people. And God can be jealous because there's nothing greater than he. But here we read that Paul wishes that true Israel become jealous. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and in doing so, he moves some to become jealous of believers. Paul would first go to a synagogue, and he would teach the gospel, and that didn't usually go very well. And so he would leave, and he would go preach to the Gentiles. And when you take that and think about it, that Israel's rejection through the providence of God provided the foundation for the church. And Paul says to make the Jews jealous, that God is using the church to provoke Israel, to draw his lost to him. So I thought as I wrote this, should people be jealous of us as Christians? Should they want what we have, for lack of a better phrase? If we are living in right walk with God, should not our lives encourage others to seek the same? I would say that rarely happens, right? Why doesn't it? Billy Joel once wrote, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. But I think when the church lives faithfully, 
people will be jealous. I think when people live in light of the gospel, people see what our marriages would, should look like. How we love our families, how we love our neighbor. But sometimes our failure as believers makes the church a very poor billboard. Paul says that God is making the Jews jealous, that they should be jealous for grace because they are fighting something that we as believers fight to this very day, and that is an imbalance that leads to an obsession with works and law. Without right understanding of grace and the heart change that it entails, law and grace as a believer is just that, law and grace, not law versus grace. They do not exist at odds with one another. They exist in harmony together. When two notes are played perfectly in tune in music, and they are the correct interval apart, both in tune, played simultaneously, they harmonize together. And when two notes harmonize together, they produce a third note called an overtone. And that overtone is audible, but it is never played. It is a result of two, na- two notes, the correct interval apart, correctly in tune, played together. And I think a biblical understanding of law and grace is similar. Law and grace, when given their rightful place, in light of the gospel, they harmonize perfectly together. And when these two harmonize, our lives sort of fill with overtones. And those may be good works. They may be heart change, softening, forgiveness, generosity, love of neighbor, or humility. And I think that this fruit can move another to desire the same. We read... Through verse 12, we receive this glimmer that God is not finished with his chosen Israel, uh, Jewish people. He did, though, through their stumble, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. We see this type of theme repeated in Scripture, right? You think of uh, Genesis 50 and Joseph, you know, what you meant as evil against me, God meant for good. Nothing is beyond God's providence or outside of his plan. In verse 15, Paul speaks of when the remnant of Israel comes to saving faith, it will be like a resurrection. And Paul is about to go deeper. He's about to go deeper into true Israel's relation to God, the Gentiles' relation to God, Israel's relation to the Gentiles. Are we different? Yes. Are we the same? Yes. And let's do our best to unpack what that means. And before we do, I want to briefly discuss three perspectives that seem to be the perspectives on interpreting the relationship between God's Israel and the church. Dispensationalism, replacement theology, and covenant theology. I'm briefly going to unpack these and... Uh, Spoiler alert, I feel that Scripture is clear that God works with his people through a series of covenant. I do not feel as though the first two can hold up to the weight of chapter 11. But if you think differently, just email me this week at adam.rice 
at capshaw.org. Dispensationalism is a way of reading the Bible where a distinction is drawn between Israel and the church. Israel being the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the church being everyone from Pentecost to rapture, saved people from Pentecost to rapture. I think the problem that arises here is we end up with two peoples of God. I don't, I don't find that in the text. With replacement theology, this is, this is an approach, a perspective where the church has somehow replaced Israel. When the Bible speaks of Israel, it now means the church. In other words, that God is switched from one chosen people to another, and that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. I think there are several problems that arise from this approach, and I think it hits a major roadblock in the very chapter that we're in. That's why I wanted to bring it up. And I want to take a brief aside here, and I want to be very clear. I'm not accusing anyone with these perspectives of being guilty of what I am about to discuss but I do think the belief that the church has superseded Israel can lead or can fuel, I should say, anti-Semitism. To begin to think that God has rejected a people he once loved and selected another, and that another just happens to be me. There's absolutely nothing God-honoring in feeling superior to or detesting a people and when it comes to Israel, many have, and many have done so from within the church. Many have done so from behind the pulpit. Not only is this not God-glorifying, to the contrary, this is distasteful and abhorrent. There mustn't be any room in the Christian heart for anti-Semitism or hatred of any race or ethnicity for that matter. The, the idea of rejecting one who God made in his image. But when we look at God's relation to us through covenant, a significant difference I find is that we're dealing with one people of God, that in Christ we are united. That there is one people of God from the Old Testament to the New, and the church is the organic continuation of the Old Testament people of God. With that in mind, with those perspectives in mind, let's read, they'll pop up on the screen, let's read four verses together, 17 through 20. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's you and me, you are, you are all wild olive shoots, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Listen to this. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root, true Israel, that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Paul is saying, 
You have nothing that should make you feel better than anyone else. There is no reason to condescend. You have nothing to be arrogant about. You have nothing to be proud of. And why does he say that? He gives a reason. He says, because you stand fast through faith. And what is faith? We read in Scripture that belief and faith are a gift of God that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, right? And if you're here today and you are my brother or sister in Christ, you're here because God changed you. God stirred in your heart to seek after him. Paul says, if you contributed anything, you do have something to boast about. But you don't because you stand fast through faith. That miraculous gift of God. The only thing we have to boast about is Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise God for that. Let's go back to our graphic from earlier, Chris. Dispensationalism, replacement theology, covenant theology. Does it sound like the church and Israel are separated? I don't see that. Paul says we're part of the same tree. I think if we were separate, there would be two trees. But instead, God has grafted the Gentiles onto the tree of his people. Paul even goes as far as to speak of how we should relate to one another. That doesn't sound to me as though we are separated. It sounds as though we are united in Christ. Nor do I believe we can make the case that the church has superseded or replaced Israel. And for the same reason, Paul says we are part of the same tree. If supersession had occurred, Jesus would chop one tree down and plant another, but he does not. The tree is all his people. And Paul is even going as far as to tell us how to relate to one another. So is some of this confusing? Yes. Um, Does God have special plans for true Israel? Yes. Are we united in Christ? Without a doubt. In terms of salvation, we are not two separate believing factions. Nor do I believe the church is a replacement for those who stumble. I do not feel the church is coming in off the bench because God's starters weren't getting the job done. Through the miraculous work of God Almighty, we are part of the same tree. True Israel is the root of the tree, and the church is the expansion branches of it. There is unity in Christ. Our third and final point today. God's faithfulness, demonstrated throughout the entirety of Scripture, should bring the believer peace and joy, knowing that all things ultimately unfold to the glory of God and the good of his people. Verses, leave that up. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Listen to this. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
severity toward those who have fallen. I said earlier that Paul would complete a thought he started in an earlier verse within this chapter. Here it is. Paul earlier drew a distinction that true Israel had stumbled, but they would not fall. But here Paul says there are others who have fallen. And those who fall will incur the severity of God. Sometimes we do not like to think of a God of severity. We would rather choose attributes of God more agreeable to our flesh. Attributes a la carte. Take the ones we want, leave the others. And the mistake we make there is we fail to, we fail to learn and appreciate that all of God's attributes are perfect. And they are all righteous. They are all holy. They exist in harmony together. And they work symbiotically to, to diminish one. It's to affect the others. I watched the Super Bowl last Sunday against my better judgment. And I, I was watching the commercials. I'm sure some of you know the commercial I'm about to reference. But there was a there was an ad campaign that played entitled, Jesus, He Gets Us. It was the tagline that stuck with me. Um, content, that's a story, that's a discussion for another time. But essentially the commercial was Jesus or an actor or a depiction of Jesus washing the feet of various um, marginalized groups, woke stereotypes, that type of thing. And at the end, this tagline, Jesus, he gets us. Interestingly enough, there's a tiny glimmer of truth in that, though it's misunderstood truth. God did make you, and Jesus does know what you are all about. He says you're a sinner that deserves to go to hell. So he does know what you are. But the focus should not be on whether or not Jesus gets us. What must grieve us as believers is how few people get Jesus. And failure to get Jesus right has terrible and eternal consequences. When we, when we witness to others with a, a Jesus a la carte approach, we attempt to sell Jesus to a lost person rather than proclaim Jesus to a lost person. In doing so, a believer can water down Jesus, and a watered-down Jesus is a false Jesus. And then we can take that, that watered-down false version to a lost person, and they'll just take it and run with it. And the result is something like we saw on Super Bowl Sunday, a Jesus that isn't even recognizable, not Jesus at all. Not getting Jesus has terrible and eternal consequences. Note the kindness and severity of God. Those who reject God and fall incur severity. But resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross is to continue in his kindness. Verse 23, speaking of true Israel and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. There must be more for true Israel. God certainly seems to have something in store 
The same grace of God that grafted us in can graft Jewish believers back into their own tree, certainly. Verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Here we, Gentiles, we are the uncultivated, the wild olive tree. And historically, until the time of the New Testament, the uncultivated worshipped anything and everything but the one true God. Lost in paganism and debauchery. Whereas the cultivated, true Israel historically has worshipped the one true God marked by obedience to God's covenant. And the uncultivated were once cut off from covenant with God. And then comes Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the one who makes it possible for the uncultivated to be grafted into the olive tree of salvation and even makes it possible for some of the original branches that were cut off to be grafted in again. They did not lose salvation in their stumble. And this miracle will be a natural act of God's grace and mercy. God certainly has something in store for his Israel. That seems clear from the text. The more I studied it, the more assured I became. I feel confident saying that. I also feel very confident saying that we do not know exactly what that is. I feel confident in saying that we are not meant to know exactly what that is. And I feel confident in saying we should be careful when others claim to know exactly what that is. When Scripture is unclear or submits itself to multiple interpretations, it is no accident or no mistake of God. We needn't form wild hypotheses. Instead, we place our faith in a faithful God, a God whose love never fades. I'm going to invite our musicians to start coming up. God's steadfast love for his Israel should give the, the Gentile believer peace. Because as children of God, once you are a child of God, you are forever preserved, you are forever saved. God's plan of salvation has been and is the blood of Jesus. His sacrificial death and atonement for our sin on the cross. And if you are here this morning and you would like to know more, come, come find one of us. We would love to talk with you. I would also like to point out that at Capshaw, you're, you are surrounded by believers that would love to tell you more about Jesus. Turn to your neighbor. Just say, tell me about this, about this Jesus. Church, let's pray together.